The Emergency Medical Minute proudly presents Dr. Robert Valick, Director of the Colorado Consortium, with his insightful talk into some of the greatest myths and mistruths surrounding opioid use and abuse in our country. This is Dreamland in Denver, and his talk, Opioid Mythbusters, 10 Fallacies That Fueled the Opioid Crisis. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. This is wonderful to, uh, to be here and to see everyone come out tonight. Uh, great idea and, and a ton of work, so I want to thank the, the staff of both the Emergency Medical Minute and the consortium for all the hard work they did. Anyone in the room who knows us at all, either Don or myself, when we get together and say, hey, we ought to do something. We ought to have a thing, you know, and then it turns into a really big deal with a lot of work for a lot of people other than myself and Don. <laughs> so, so yeah, so that's what we're doing. But thanks very much, and it's a thrill to see everybody in the room. Uh, to see this place packed is fantastic, and the awareness we want to raise. So I'm going to bust out a new talk that I've never given before, so no better time to do it than when you have 600 people in the room, is to come and share some things that have been percolating in my head over the last several years of doing this work. I've been doing opioid abuse prevention work for 25 years at the school, and these are things that have kind of been, you know, on the back of the, of the envelope and the napkin for a long time to share with you some things that I think are myths and misconceptions. So, of course, I drug out. I showed this to my, my sons, and they're like, Dad, that's, that's really 2004. Uh, you know, Mythbusters is off the air. You know, they, don't, they don't have that anymore. And I said, well, then good. Maybe they won't see that I stole the, the cut and paste of the graphic uh, when I did it. But, but I wanted to share with you some things that I think are important you know, to think about that how we've gotten into the mess that we're in has been fueled by a lot of things that are myths and misconceptions. And I've written down about 40 or 50 of them, and I just picked 10 of these things that I wanted to share really briefly, kind of a minute each about these things, just to think about, that kind of helped fuel and, and get us to where we are, because I think it can help be instructive in terms of how we get out of it. So I'm gonna try, ah, number one. So each myth that I'm gonna go over these 10 is just a simple number. So the first one is the number zero. And I think this is one of the strongest things, the very first one, put this first for a reason. It's one of the biggest reasons we're in this mess is the myth of zero pain. First, we know that pain serves a purpose and physiologically we need to have some of it. If we don't have it, people that don't have pain and cannot sense pain don't do well. They get themselves hurt and die a lot and they have pre you know, premature death because they don't have pain and can't feel it. So pain is, is physiologically very important. But the notion that I think relieving pain is fine, but the notion that we can get to zero pain is false. It's, it's an absolute myth. And pharmacologically, that we can get you to zero pain by taking a medication is not true. There are no painkillers, but it's in our lexicon. I need some painkillers. I want strong painkillers. Here, I will prescribe you some painkillers. Wrong, wrong, wrong. They don't kill pain. Pain modulators, pain relievers, uh, all kinds of things like that that we have at our disposal, and various kinds of pain medications, but none of them is a painkiller. So I just think it's a myth that has to be stricken. We have to quit using the word painkiller. And if there's health professionals here in the crowd, I know there's some of us, don't use the word painkiller, because we can't kill it. The only way to kill pain is to remove the source. And if you can do that, fine. But if you can't, then figure out how to manage and treat it, but it's not killing the pain. So that's number one. Number two, second myth, is the Roman numeral two, as in the DEA schedule two. This has taken on, you know, it really has become almost to the point of urban legend that, you know, this is, quote, the good stuff, right? 
these are the best painkillers there are, are on Schedule 2. So I want me some stuff that's Schedule 2. Whatever I got, I, you know, I almost don't care what I got, but if it hurts or I don't feel good, I want some Schedule 2 narcotics. Wrong. And I'll tell you why you don't want Schedule 2 narcotics. Schedule 2 narcotics are not listed on DEA Schedule 2 because of their superior therapeutic benefit in the reduction of pain. <laughs> But that's the commonly held belief. Those are the good ones. Those are the ones that relieve pain better. Wrong. DEA folks will tell you, and there are somebody here in the audience, a good friend of mine who's with the DEA for a very long time, can tell you this. DEA's not in the business of evaluating therapeutic claims of efficacy. <laughs> There's three other letters for that. That's FDA. That's not DEA, and it has nothing to do with the Roman numeral two. The Roman numeral two has everything to do with the drug's ability to cause addiction, abuse, diversion, and death. So it's really good, and it is more potent. That is the good stuff, if your goal is to become addicted or die. And that's what we don't, that's what we don't know. That's the myth, is that number two, it means better pain reliever, and all it means is it has better ability to cause addiction and death. So that's why I tell people, if it's got that number two on it, get me away from that thing. You know, I, I, I don't want it very potentially dangerous for me. Myth number three, and we're number one. Everybody wants to be number one. The United States is number one in treating pain because we know what we're doing. You know, we're number one in everything. We have the best healthcare system, right? We're number one. <laughs> healthcare non-system. We have the best you know, treatment, and in many ways I would argue we do. Some of the very best specialists. We're on one of the, the best campuses in the world in terms of advancing healthcare. There are some of the very best researchers, clinicians, and educators here on this campus. And it's fantastic, and, and it's terrific, but we are not number one in treating pain. We are number one in consuming the most hydrocodone in the world. 98% of the world's hydrocodone, or excuse me, oxycodone is dispensed in the United States. 80% of the world's opioids in general, prescribed opioids, is dispensed in the United States. I don't think we're number, we are number one in using opioids, but we are not number one in terms of having the highest population in the world, not close, nor number one in the amount of pain that we experience in the world. So again, it's a myth that we, quote, do everything better here because we rely on opioids. You know, we have the best health care, so it must be the right way to do it. Not necessarily true. Myth number four, 100% of people who go through surgery or are injured in an acute injury and either ride in the ambulance or go to the emergency room, need an opioid. I hear this all the time. I'm cutting on somebody, I'm doing harm to them. I've got to give them an opioid. It's, it's an imperative to give that to them because of the harm that I'm doing to them. Or somebody's coming into the emergency room, uh, look, somebody's in a, you know, their leg is broken, this pain cannot be managed without opioids. Wrong, wrong, and wrong. Standard of care in Europe, if you're riding to the hospital in an ambulance, is to have IV acetaminophen. Works better than opioids. Works better than IV morphine. At least it's not the standard of care here. But it works better. It's not necessarily true that you need to have opioids, even in surgery. A friend of mine is a spinal surgeon in La Jolla, California. He's younger, he's better looking, richer. 
So that's about it, you know, all those things. He's better than me in just about every, every way you could be better. Uh, but he's a spinal surgeon, and we've been talking about all this stuff, and he's like, look, Rob, here's this opioid sparing protocol that I use, and all I do is hip replacements on Monday, knee replacements on Tuesday, shoulder replacements on Wednesday, spinal fusions on Thursday, and clinic on Friday for follow-ups. That's all I do. I use no opioids. I use liposomal bupivacaine, a long-acting injectable anesthetic that lasts for two days. And when people come out of these surgical procedures, like three discs, spinal fusions, coming out and we just do a non-steroidal rotation, and out of 120 patients, the last 120 patients that he has seen, I talked to him over the weekend, four of them asked for opioids. He gave them six tablets apiece. He's dispensed 24 Vicodin tablets in a year. So it's absolutely not true that you have to have opioids after surgery. No, you don't. Some surgeries maybe you do, but certain, many surgeries, you don't need them. And so I start telling people that now. Go see if this works. If not, then ask them for this. And another friend of mine had a spinal fusion. And same thing. It's like, oh, it's a miracle. My anesthesiologist couldn't believe I was asking him to not use any opioids on me. He said, sure, I'll not use them if you're willing to. And he was. He said, this is great. Now he's a you know, walking you know, billboard for the alternatives to opioids or Alto approach. Myth number five, 6%. The notion is that if you give people appropriate uh, opioids appropriately, nobody becomes addicted. You can remember this from 1981, that there was a you know, little letter to the editor in the New England Journal of Medicine. We've heard about this thing, that if you use opioids appropriately after surgery, nobody becomes addicted. That became legend in the New England Journal of Medicine. The best data that we have now suggests that, and this is from hundreds of thousands of patients, so we believe these data are far better than following a couple hundred, but hundreds of thousands of patients, that 6% of patients after a surgical procedure that receive opioids, that were opioid naive, receive opioids after their surgery, bless you, either major or minor surgery, 6% of them are still persistent a year later. Are still on the opioids a year. That's unacceptably high. Great. We do not need people to be on opioids after any surgical procedure a year later. But that's the number. So we have to realize this is not an uncommon event. Well, that was what we were sold, a bill of goods. This is a very uncommon thing. Not true. 6%, if that's the complication rate, I would call addiction a complication after a minor surgery. I'd call that a pretty serious complication. We would redesign surgical suites. We would shut down the hospital and say, we've got to do something about that surgical suite. Something's wrong with our technique or our instrumentation, or something's wrong, we have to fix that if it's 6% major complications. But we just kind of go along and say, oh, I don't know, just writing pain meds after surgery. Everybody needs pain meds. 100% of people need them, right? Number six, 1.8. One of the most compelling numbers that I've read in a long time is what's called the number needed to treat. How many people need to receive a medication to have an effect? before you'll see one person that has an effect. So one would mean everybody that you give the drug to is effective. The number needed to treat is one. Treat one person, get, get one that's fully effective. The number needed to treat, we use this all the time now to try to explain how well drugs work. And the number needed to treat is 1.8 for 50% pain reduction if you take Tylenol, 500 milligrams, rapid release gel. Four hours later, take one ibuprofen, rapid release gel, and rotate those every four hours. 1.8 is the number needed to treat. It's a very low number. Anything below two or two and a half is considered a, like a no-brainer. These drugs work really well. And that gives you 50 to 55% pain relief. 
the number needed to treat for a five milligram Percocet tablet is 5.5. The number needed to treat for two Percocet tablets is 3.5. Still twice as bad as simply using one ibuprofen and one Tylenol every four hours. That's the rotation that I'm talking about that my friend the spinal surgeon uses after spinal surgery when people have hip replacements and knee replacements. Get up two days later and are walking around on non-steroidals and never consume an opioid. So the data, when people ask me, why do, why do you not use opioids? You're afraid of addiction? I said, well, yes, but I don't use them because they suck. <laughs> I want the stuff that gives you 50% you know, pain relief and no addiction, or 35% pain relief and the chance of addiction. I'm taking the 50 and, and the no addiction every day of the week. Myth number seven, 16,000. We hear about a lot you know, of estimates of how many people die if we're gonna use this regimen. The first counter argument that I always get is, but people will die if you give them all that ibuprofen and, and acetaminophen. 16,000 people a year, this is the quote, and some estimates have been as high as 25,000 a year, die from non-steroidal induced GI bleeds. Except that that wasn't true. There was a study that had about 15 people in one unit in California. And we said, well, what if we extrapolate that to the entire United States? <laughs> and that would be somewhere between 16 and 24,000 a year. So that number has taken on this sort of mythical proportions of that's how many people die from non-steroidal induced GI bleeds. And I'm like, no, it's not really. And you talk to docs and it happens. But it's not like that. It's not that number. It's not like opioid deaths number. But it's, it's again, it's a counter argument to people saying, no, no, you can't use the non-steroidals. And it's not to say they don't have side effects. Every drug has side effects. No free lunch. You know, even the cookies out there at the break have a side effect. You know, there's, some, there's enough sugar in there, I'm telling you, you know, be careful. The only thing that isn't is, is the water. That's about the only safe thing. Number eight, one plus one. Simplest math you learn in kindergarten, right? And it's, it's another myth is that one dose of an opioid and one dose of something like an anxiety drug. You've heard of people that need anxiety drugs. That that's safe, that's fine. One dose each, right? Well, I can talk to a couple people. Where's Karen Hill? And where's Susie Stolte? They can tell you that one dose of an opioid and one dose of a benzodiazepine will kill you. It took their children from them. The drug interaction is extremely important, and it's an underappreciated part of this epidemic. They are part of a foundation, the JP Opioid Interaction Awareness Alliance, that is focusing entirely on that problem. And they're a co-sponsor of this event. They're giving money to this event to try to raise awareness about. So thank you, Susie, and thank you, Karen, for that. <laughs> Myth number nine is this number 90. We see 90 is the number of morphine equivalents that the CDC says can't go over that. And if I stay below 90, I'll be fine, right? That's, my risk is not bad if I go below. So I, see, I hear people talking about all kinds of things. Or if I go over 90, I'm going to die. Neither of those is true. 90 is a general kind of inflection point in a risk curve that the more opioid you take, the more at risk you're going to be for things like tolerance and dependence and respiratory depression and overdose. And, and that's true. It's, it's roughly dose-dependent along the course. But that starts very low doses, 10 or 15 morphine equivalents a day. Starts to increase your risk. So this notion of thresholds, and people get really you know, bent out of shape about the 90 morphine equivalent threshold and I really couldn't care less about the number. It's if you're gonna take these things, monitor people appropriately. People in, with chronic pain that are monitored appropriately on opioids, that's fine. But the number shouldn't be the focus. You know, just to think that it's automatically bad if you're above it, 
automatically okay if you're below it. This is the magic number for where it gets bad. None of that is true. Look at the graph, look at the approach. When you've heard this, the more you take, the worse it gets. That's the idea. Avoid them when you can. Be careful when you take them. And the last one that I want to focus on, I think is super important, especially with some of what you heard. With Albie's story, which I think is amazing, by the way, what he has done, he's a super inspirational person. But what, when he talks about this, you know, and people say, uh, in and out of treatment, 30 days is what we think about for treatment, right? This is the common, commonly held number in people's minds. I'm gonna go to treatment, I'm gonna go to rehab, get into treatment, how long does treatment last? 30 days, right? Bull. Total, I mean, I mean, busted. I told my son I'm gonna put up the thing that says busted, but I can't get the slides to work. But that's absolutely, abs lucky to get 10 slides. But totally busted, because that's an insurance artifact about covering 30 days of something. It has no relationship to how much somebody needs to have in terms of treatment. You talk about the number of times someone's gone through treatment before they have success. Average is 5.5. And the current data showed that the best data on really intensive treatment programs require at least 180 days of intense treatment. To the level that we would think this is probably inpatient treatment. And in many months more, and you're getting out in 18 month to two year treatment windows now, where we're saying, that's about right for treatment. So people say, I failed treatment, I went into treatment, I failed. They think they're a failure. Or their families think they're a failure. Or society thinks they're a failure at 30 days of treatment. And I just say, that's like saying, you have an infection, we need to give you some doses to kill that infection, this antibiotic, we're just gonna give you one tablet, and, and come back tomorrow and we'll see how your infection's doing. Oh, gee, you still have the infection. Well, you suck. <laughs> and it, uh, you've got to be kidding me, but that's exactly what we're doing to people. And we're telling them that they, they're, they're, they're at fault. They are failing treatment. They believe they are failing. We are failing in setting up systems that are evidence-based and designed to give them the treatment they need to be successful in getting treatment. And it ain't 30 days. So that's, that's the one I want to leave people with tonight, is that this whole notion of what treatment really is. We're seeing the, the literature that's coming out, the very best examples of whether they're drug courts or things like peer assistance and peer recovery programs that are pretty well studied because they're very intense and regimented over longer periods of time. And gee, you see the multi-year success rates are much higher. It, there, there is no, seriously, there is no mystery to it. We're just underdosing people as far as treatment. We are simply underdosing people and we have to stop and we have to tell them, I'm sorry, we have failed you. We have failed you as a medical profession in undertreating you. We were wrong. You need more. We have to give you what you need. So thank you very much. I appreciate your time.